Welcome to episode 53 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, and my colleague Conan French and I have just returned from the Singapore Fintech Festival, where we recorded this episode live in the exhibition halls with Christian Carlo, the recently retired chair of the CFTC. Chris was a leader in positioning the CFTC for the era of digital innovation. He established Lab CFTC, forged cross-border partnerships with other leading agencies, such as the FCA in the UK, and of course he earned himself the nickname of Crypto Dad along the way. For context on the event, the Singapore Fintech Festival is the biggest fintech event in the world, now in its fourth year, and this year drawing 65,000 attendees. I recommend a great short video that Conan has tweeted for those trying to gauge the overall scale of this event. Conan and I also took the opportunity to run some roundtables on the challenges in digital transformation together with our good friends at Deloitte, and Deloitte have very kindly lent us the use of their exhibitor booth for this episode. One consequence is that you will hear some of those 65,000 attendees in the background. I'll give a quick shout out to our FRT producer, Kate Sammer, who does a fantastic job in making us sound clear, but we did throw her a bit of a challenge amidst this enormous exhibition. With that, let's turn to Singapore. Chris, thank you for joining us. Welcome to FRT. Thanks, Brad. It's really good to be here. Chris, I want to get your sense of the big themes from this event, and we'll come to that a little bit later. I also want to talk about your digital dollar proposal. But firstly, let's talk about you and life post-CFTC. I saw on Twitter that you've been fishing with your son. You've probably got a little bit more time to partake in some of those of life's pleasures. But what else are you focusing on? Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, running the CFTC, the title is chairman, but it's that's a small part of the work. It's actually... Uh, Chief Executive Officer is the bigger part of it. A lot of your time just just running the agency. And when I arrived at the agency, the agency was at an impasse with its labor union. We wound up negotiating a three-year collective bargaining agreement. Uh, A lot of my time was spent running the agency. And that left uh, time enough, but not as much time as I'd like, to focus on bigger issues of great interest to me. And one of those is the digitization of financial markets. The nice thing about having stepped down, and by the way, I wouldn't have given up a minute of my five years at the CFTC. The nice thing is I get to focus on just the inter- things I'm interested in and don't have to run an agency to boot. So uh, I really enjoy the agency, but really having fun now, focusing on things like digital dollars and, and other things. I just joined the board of the American Financial Exchange, which has launched Ameribor, which is just a remarkable new uh, uh, lending market for uh, for banks to lend to other financial institutions on an unsecured basis, and it's growing very, very rapidly. I'm excited about that. I've joined the board of the Digital Chamber of Commerce, which has got a major presence here yes. at the festival and is doing some great things. And I'm looking at a number of public company boards, consulting work, and some other things, all in the area of where my life has been spent for the last 30 years, which is the intersection of markets, technology, and public policy. And really, I can focus on that full time. So this is a great time. I'm having a ball. Excellent. Well, it's great to hear. And I guess yeah, one of the big stories of this year has been Libra, most publicly launched in June. Conan, I think you made the point on your panel here at the festival yesterday that, that one of the consequences of Libra is that it's galvanised a lot of other activity by central banks, including some of the potential developments of central bank digital currencies. I'm interested, firstly, in, in your reaction to, you know, I guess it's been the, the four or five months uh, that Libra has been with us in the public domain, that and some of the other proposals that it's perhaps spurring. Well, you know, There's something going on generationally behind cryptocurrency, something I've been talking about for a number of years, including at that 2018 Senate hearing where I earned the crypto dad nickname. But when I grew up, okay, after my school, the first institutional relationship I had was a bank relationship. Summer job, get a paycheck, you need a place to cash it, your parents march you down to the bank, you open up a bank account. 
Well, the new generation, that's not the first institutional relationship other than school. The first one is your social media provider. The second one is online retailer. And the third one is their mobile provider. The bank relationship doesn't come into their mid-20s. And it's no surprise to me that those three entities, being social media, online retailers, and mobile providers, are moving forward to provide value-based transfer mechanisms for a generation that have their attention. I think it's a real challenge for the traditional banking system. And I think part of what you're seeing here, whether it's the threat to bank relationships, bank-provided accounts from social media providers, is a generational challenge that they're realizing. And I think our, our traditional banks have a long way to go to recapture a generation that has built other relationships that are in some ways more important than they have with banks. And, and besides the, the crypto dad testimony, it was a couple of months later you gave a speech at Vanderbilt University, often cited this. You gave the, it was very striking, the point about how it's kind of this reaction of younger people. And I think you contrasted it to, or compared it to the, the civil rights era and the post-Vietnam reactions that it's perhaps this level of a seismic shift we're seeing on that generational basis. We're definitely seeing a seismic shift. You know, it's, it's interesting that Bitcoin grew out of the financial crisis. And we're going to look back in time and realize the financial crisis had a societal impact. You know, all the institutions that, that we grew up with some degree of admiration for and that we built an infrastructure upon seem to have failed or underperformed or in some case outright screwed up during the financial crisis. And I think a generation that came of age looked at that and said, we can do better and we can design something different. And that was my message to the Senate Banking Committee. You've got to respect that change in attitude. We've got to build a legal and a regulatory structure that's a foundation for a new generation of institutions. And I think that institutions that recognize this challenge, that are not frozen by the fear of disruption, but get ahead of it, will succeed and survive. And those that are caught in the crossfire and like here's the headlight are going to fail. So we've just passed the 10 year anniversary of Bitcoin. And I think over the last four or five years, you've seen a lot of central banks have been engaged in investigating the potential of blockchain technology in there for the next generation of money, what's referred to as CBDC, central bank digital currency, really meaning using blockchain, crypto, and other new technologies for an upgrade of the functionality of money. So this work has been going on, but I think the Libra proposal really you know, put the gas into the accelerator for a lot of these initiatives. And the PBOC in China is clearly one where we saw last week, President Xi came out on Wednesday, said we need to embrace the technology. Their uh, Congress passed a crypto law on Saturday, which then would go into effect on January 1st. And by Monday, the deputy governor of PBOC was presiding over uh, cooperative agreements with Huawei and others on the rollout and development of this technology. So that's one clear public example. Many central banks have been working for many years, though. When you look at this landscape and when you thought about your digital dollar proposal, sort of how are you viewing that and, and sort of what's the need in the money layer for the next generation of the internet? Yeah, first of all, as we all know, China is formidable. Their leadership is formidable when they set their minds to something. And you see a, a firmness and resolve and determination in this regard that is no surprising for those of us that have followed China. I have been, as chairman of the CFTC, I've remarked in a number of cases publicly on China's determination to see some of the world's key commodities, the pricing to be set in yuan as alternative to the dollar. 
So their determination to advance the yuan as a global reserve currency, as a pricing benchmark, is no surprise. And their determination to move forward with the digital version of their currency is no surprise. I do think it presents challenges to the dollar's supremacy as the world's reserve currency. But the last several generations that we've lived through, first with the gold standard and then the dollar replacing the gold standard, and having 70% or more of the world's custom is fairly unique in history. At most phases of history, different currencies competed for the world's patronage as the dominant currency. Before there was the US dollar, during the European settlement of North America, the dominant currency of international commerce was the Spanish dollar, upon which the US dollar was named. And the reason why the Spanish dollar was the dominant currency in international trade was safety and soundness, which is one of the characteristics that supported the dollar for several generations, but also convenience. The Spanish dollar was minted with a Central American silver that was purer than the silver that was used in many other currencies, and therefore it used less alloy, making it lighter. And whether it's lighter in your pocket or lighter in your trunk, more convenient, but it also had another feature. It was designed so it could be easily broken into eight pieces, known as pieces of eight. Think about that as fractionalization. So it was a currency that had the safety and soundness feature because it was more consistently minted, but secondly, it had a convenience factor. Now, fast forward to today. The dollar has been the dominant currency in international trade. Why safety and soundness, but also up till now, convenience. Well, others are recognizing that perhaps the convenience factor built upon a financial infrastructure that's increasingly, apparently, old and creaky. And as we go into a digital era, a non-digital dollar becomes a detriment to its continuation as the world's dominant currency. And so uh, the proposal that Daniel Borfine and I put forward for a digital dollar needs to address that convenience factor in a digital era. Convenience and fractionalization is, is one piece of you know, new functionality. Yep. What are some other pieces of functionality that you think the future of money needs to evolve to serve? You know, when you think about a commodities market and how that money layer intersects with other elements of the financial infrastructure right. of the world. So, so, look, we've got an infrastructure that's, that's, that was built in an analog era. It's a 20th century infrastructure. And as you walk around the floor here in Singapore, you realize that the 21st century is well underway. There are... I don't know how many thousand exhibitors at this event, but all of them in some way or another are addressing a legacy-based financial infrastructure with fixes and tweaks, and in some cases, outright replacement with new digital rails. The currency that is going to emerge in that era has got to be designed to function on all of that. I'm not certain that the 21st century sees a dominant currency the way the 20th century does. But what I'm hoping for is that the dollar remains as viable as possible. And to make it as viable as possible, we've got to fix, we've got to address its currently analog-based nature. And digital version is only one part. Obviously, we've got to have instantaneous payment systems, we have others. And there are many ideas to address many of those things. My proposal is just for the digital elements. It was a very interesting op-ed that you and your former colleague, Daniel Borkman, had in the Wall Street Journal Early October, I think it was. Yes. So I think, you know, taking that point you emphasize on the convenience, yeah, is, is there a little more you can elaborate in terms of where you see this proposal heading? Yeah, so, so one of the reasons why I think the notion of a digital might be challenging 
to some audience, is that the battle is not being fought in Austin, Texas. The battle is not being fought in Soho, New York, and San Francisco. There, the dollar is rightly dominant and will be for a long time to come. But the battle is being fought today in East Africa. The battle is being fought today in Southeast Asia for which currency, which payment systems are going to, to dominate. You know, if you go into the marketplace in Sierra Leone, you want to buy vegetables, you can use the Leone. But if you want to buy a Toyota, you've got to have hard currency, and you've got to have an electronic payment capability. And the question is whether the dollar is going to be competitive in that environment against other central bank currencies. So that brings us to what is the Giancarlo Dorfman proposal. In a little more detail than I was able to do in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so first of all, it's inclusive. What we're proposing is something that overlays on the existing account providers, whether they're provided by traditional banks, whether they're provided by credit card companies, whether provided by online merchants. It's not meant to replace any of that infrastructure. It's meant to give them a set of standardized protocols blessed by the Federal Reserve, but designed commercially for their use and to have a uniform set of protocols that they can all use. And for the set of that, be interoperable with the other frameworks, you know, more domestic. Exactly. And, and it's also non-exclusive against other crypto assets. We do not propose suppressing any of the other offerings, whether it be from Libra or otherwise. I believe, and I've always believed in market diversity, but I believe in a world of competing payment systems, the dollar will stand on its own. It doesn't need to find a way to suppress other offerings in the marketplace. We see the Fed in our proposal as the validator, as the standard setter, but not as the builder of this. We think that it's a traditionally American approach to bring the best minds together, use the, the private marketplace with its dynamism, with, it, with its ability to, to marshal capital, to bring the best minds and the best capabilities to bear. And, and again, we view it as very inclusive. There are so many builders today that are building pieces of this new digital financial system that can bring their talents, their skills, their infrastructure to bear to help build this thing. So we see that as an opportunity to bring the best and brightest. And that's why we use the, the moonshot of the late 1950s and 1960s as an example of marshalling the best and brightest with the federal government serving a coordination role. Every time there's a junction in the development, the Fed should have a say in how that develops. What this is really about, Brad, is the dollar is going to be digitized in some form or another. The question is whether the Fed's going to have a say in how that turns out. And what we're proposing is, yes, they very much have a say in how it turns out, and we, but we do it now. This is not a 10-year project. This is a now, we do it now. You alluded in your Wall Street Journal op-ed the, I guess, the inclusive ecosystem, including the role for commercial banks as part of this framework. Yes. And as we've looked at, at some of the, the different design considerations, the different models of central bank digital currencies, yeah, we see the Canadians, for instance, talking about a model in which the commercial banks would be very much still involved. It would be essentially a case of having digital loonies on your phone. Exactly. And, and that's what we're talking about. And it, and it kind of replaces drawing cash from an ATM. You, you top up from your Scotiabank account to your, your tokens. And, well, that's what we're talking about exactly. Which is quite a different model to the Swedish model that Stefan Ingvers is talking about. Stefan joined us back on episode 42 of FRC, and he sees it much more in a context of companies, individual citizens being able to front directly to the central bank 
that would have a much more significant impact on the broader financial system. Yeah, and, and you know, there's cultural differences there, right? You know, in countries like Sweden and certainly in Germany, the federal government has a role, whether it's through the post office or others, of offering direct accounts to people outside of the traditional banking system. In the United States, our federal government hasn't gotten involved in that. But we have a big, diverse banking system, traditionally many, many banking institutions that have relationships. So what we're proposing is to build on, in some ways, a very traditional American approach where with whom you have your relationship, whether it's a bank, whether it's Uber, whether it's Amazon, whether it's your social media provider, whoever you have a dollar-based account would be able to license the standardized set of protocols and provide you with a digital account. But just as you say, it might even be your mobile phone provider that you could say, load me up with 200 digital dollars so I can go and buy my Starbucks tomorrow. I can buy my new set of sneakers on Amazon. I can use it for long distance telephone calls or pay my monthly bill. So we're looking to build upon existing relationships. Augustine Carson's VIS opened up proceedings this morning talking about what they're doing you know, as they look at all of their different central bank members around the world and all of the efforts that those members have been taking on their own behalf to look at next generation currencies and what the role of the VIS might do as they launch their innovation labs, one here in Singapore, Hong Kong, and also in Basel, of course. As you start to think about different markets and different central banks pursuing sort of, as you mentioned, different design considerations based on the context in their market and their priorities, how do you view the international market sort of connecting up? Because that's been one of the big drivers for the Libra conversation is that you need a consistent store of value or a consistent system that would reduce the friction for global trade and global cross-border interaction the way they have in some domestic markets. For several generations, the dollar has been that standardized vehicle, right? You know, today, if you want to buy oil, you want to buy a yacht, you want to buy a large property, the price globally anywhere in the world is priced in dollars. The dollar is the standard. What we're proposing is how do we maximize the dollar's continuation in that role. So I would say to those who say we need a standard, you have a standard, but the standard setter, being the provider of the dollar, has to do everything possible to maintain its viability in a digital world. By upgrading the functionality of by, that global uh, By up- upgrading the functionality. What we're proposing, we don't see as revolutionary. We see as evolutionary. It's the next step in how do we maintain the dollar. Now, other factors go into it as well. And so the dollar strength as we go into the 21st century will depend on many things. But some of these other offerings are going to have their own attributes and their own characteristics that others may find useful. Again, human history is more often competing global currencies. The dollar's global dominance is a relatively rare thing in the history of human commerce on the globe. I, for one, support it. I'd like to see it remain as long as possible. I think it brings great benefits to transactions around the world. You know, pricing oil in multiple different currencies in different regions. Whenever you have the fragmentation of markets, you have pricing inequalities and you have an inefficient market. So, you know, the global commodity market that's dollar priced, I think, has been a net good for many people in the world. But we'll see how that evolves in the years to come. So I think that's a really good point. I think it's a very interesting summary of some of the history you've mentioned of meeting global currencies. We've seen Mark Carney talk recently about launching a synthetic hegemonic currency, as he termed it, which kind of sounded like a, a modernised version of Bancor that John Maynard Keynes had taken to Bretton Woods in 1944. I think you're right that for a lot of other countries that are perhaps American allies or participants in the global economy, that the dollar regime has by and large reduced a lot of the frictions you mentioned. 
It's also, I think, from a pragmatic point of view, probably served most markets reasonably well. But the emergence of the PBOC's proposals perhaps presents a scenario for exporters to China five years from now, perhaps, that you may be told by your Chinese industrialist, we're not paying you in dollars anymore, we're going to pay you in digital remit. And that perhaps throws up the scenarios of, of firstly, am I being paid in an instrument that the BBOC can recalibrate at any time? And do I have an additional friction or an additional hedging element that is brought into that scenario? For that basket of currency approach that Governor Carney's talked about, the question is, how does that basket... How is it constituted? How is it changed? How is it adjusted? What's the governing body? What's the governing body? So let me add one thing in, in support of a digital dollar that I don't think any of these other offerings can provide. I don't think any other government, certainly not the Chinese government, could provide, and I don't think any of the commercial entities can provide. And that is, only the U.S. government is limited by the United States Constitution for mining that data. The Fourth and Fifth Amendments against unreasonable search and seizure and due process provide a basis for a, a body of jurisprudence that would limit the government. Now remember, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, are limitations on the federal government. They're not limitations on social media providers, as we know. Yes. They're not limitations on foreign governments, as we know. And so with the right context, John Carlo Gorfine proposal, where you would build a jurisprudence around this, you could have a digital dollar where the data would be more sacrosanct than virtually some of these other competitions. And so one of the things that I will be developing in the weeks to come is how does the US dollar use that attribute, that limitation on its access to the data as a selling point, if you will, against a lot of other providers of a digital currency. And at some point, to compete against the dollar, other providers of currencies may have to self-limit themselves as well to the data. I think that's a very interesting aspect, one of the reasons why I think people can have a new generation of comfort in a digital dollar that might not be in some of these other offerings. I think you're right. I think that is a real selling point, and certainly we see the sensitivity associated with data privacy increasingly all over the world. Europe's been a legislative leader with GDPR, but it's a big theme. We had four sessions on data policy in our annual meeting recently. It's something you hear talked about here. I, I agree that would be a real selling point. Right. So countries with currency controls, for example, certainly those governments are going to be mining that data to see where people spend and direct their money. In a digital dollar, you know, I could see outside of anti-money laundering, the federal government would have no right to find out what movie you downloaded or outside of anti-money laundering why you send a remittance from San Francisco to the Philippines, for example. So there's a lot more to this than just crypto dad walking into the new Harry Dexter White thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, again, one of the great things about having been a chairman and now stepping down is I can just spend my time focusing on things like this that I think are are so important, but actually so fun. I mean, just, it's the fun factor. So as we can hear with uh, all the background ambient noise here, 65,000 people, Singapore FinTech Festival, this is year four. I think you've been to uh, most of them. It's been amazing to see how this entire ecosystem and government, the entire city-state of Singapore really got behind the FinTech revolution. Some thoughts and observations as somebody who's been watching the Monetary Authority and the other, other pieces of the government here really sees the future and try and evolve the sector. Yeah, Singapore is one of my favorite cities in the world. There's such a buzz. The moment you step off the plane here, there's a buzz. This is a this is a city-state that understands its core raison d'etre, which is to be a financial hub in this part of the world. And they are doing everything possible to maintain their edge. They are moving forward into a digital financial system here, and they are at the forefront. All of us are mature economies like the United States, 
like you're, you mentioned that the BIS is opening office there. The Chamber of Digital Commerce, which I said on the advisory board, is opening up here. This is where things are happening. This is the cutting edge right here. And it's very exciting to see that the future of financial services is being shaped right here. And the folks at the MIS and the Singaporean government really have a lot to be proud of. Anything on uh, themes that stand out? I think for me, it's really just the scale. So we've been talking about digital currencies, blockchain, crypto technology, quantum computing coming online, the move to the cloud. So I think a lot of the topics are the same, but they used to be sort of this is an innovation theory. You spend a few days and now it's really the core focus, I think, for the industry, boardrooms, the C-suite. One of the first opening panels here had three or four members of the IF board talking about their digital transformation of the industry. So for me, I think the theme over the last couple of years is how it's really now completely sort of the core focus of the industry moving forward. So all of those subject matters are absolutely what is on the forefront here. But here's another observation, slightly asynchronous with that, and that is the youth here. I mean, you walk the floor, 80% of the people here are under the age of 30, probably a good portion of the under the age of 25. The future of financial services are taking place here, both technologically, but generationally as well. And that's the thing that I find really, really impressive. The energy that's here, I wish the same energy were in financial services uh, in New York City, in San Francisco, and, and, and we need to bring some of that back. There's a generation here that are gonna improve their lives by building the next, the future of financial services. And I'm really excited. So thank you, Chris. And it would be remiss of me not to thank you for your engagement with the IIF during your tenure at the CFTC, and also for the work that you did in showing international regulatory cooperation, particularly in the areas where you focused on derivatives markets, for instance. You've been very generous with your time on many occasions, and we've enjoyed the several times that you've spoken at IIF events, including when Conan and I hosted you, spoke with Craig Phillips and our CEO, Tim Adams, at our Digital Financial Symposium earlier this year. A few things that really stood out for me in Chris's comments. Firstly, he reiterated a theme that we've heard a lot through our Singapore discussions, the question of which firms are ready to adapt, that are prepared for partnering with tech firms and new providers, that this will be the key determinant for which firms can survive and thrive in the new digital world. Specifically on the dollar and currencies, I really like Chris's emphasis on currency convenience and that Spanish dollar experience, not least the fractionalization from the divisibility into eights. There's an important historical lesson there of convenience as one of the key attributes in a currency, which others sometimes overlook or downplay. There is a real cognizance of the key design considerations if we think about the different Swedish and Canadian models of potential CBDCs. And I think it's significant that Chris's vision is very much one that's designed to be inclusive and interoperable for other market participants. The US constitutional restrictions on the privacy of currency data. This is perhaps the most striking point I learned from our discussion. And I think it's especially notable with the growing focus on privacy all around the world, including with GDPR in Europe and also the APEC data ecosystem. And lastly, on the Singapore event itself, we used to say that all roads lead to Baal in financial regulation, but in the new world, they increasingly all lead to Singapore. And I also like the point that Chris made about the presence and the energy of so many young people. It aligns well with an observation made in our roundtables here in DC recently, that where many of us grew up in the analog world and now are adapting, we need to be conscious that many in the ecosystem are actually digital native. Looking ahead on FRT, also coming from Singapore, Conan spoke with Sopnendu Mohanty, the Chief Fintech Officer at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, a man who's very much the driver behind this festival. They speak both on reflections from this year's event and also on what's ahead. 
I'll also be at RiskMinds in Amsterdam in early December, just as per last year, way back on episode 19, when we discussed digital risk with Marcus Kromick of Commerce Bank and Harold Massonero of BCP Peru. Please join us again for those great discussions on all podcast apps and also on the IAF website. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.